Okay, we are in, uh, back in the book of Acts. And if you've been with us, we're walking through the first part of Acts all the way up to uh, Paul's conversion. And so uh, as we uh, look at it, Acts chapter 1, Jesus uh, has been on the earth for 40 days. He ascends up into heaven. Acts chapter 2, uh, the Holy Spirit comes and Pentecost, and we see a number of people come to Christ. Um, Acts chapter 3, they, uh, Peter heals a guy, and the next thing you know, he finds himself before the Sanhedrin, and they say, hey, don't do that anymore. Don't, don't keep talking about this resurrected Jesus. Uh, then we get to uh, Acts chapter 4, and uh, he continues to preach, and they haul him into jail, and the angel delivers him, and then he's before the Sanhedrin again, and this time they, they, uh, they beat them. Uh, we get to Acts chapter 5, and we have uh, Anani- the story of Ananias and Sapphira, the idea that God is very, very serious about his church. We get to Acts chapter 6, and, and the church has grown to a point that they're kind of starting to not take care of each other, and so they, for the first time, bring a little bit of organization to this thing called the church. Now, you have to remember that as we talk about the church in Acts, chapter, in, in Acts right now, first of all, they're not called Christians at this point. That's going to come later. Secondly, church is not like church like we know today. These are a bunch of people. They've got no Bible, first of all. Um, Many of them come from a Jewish background, so they might know some of the Old Testament. Uh, They have uh, no praise teams or music or screens or all the things that we got today. Uh, They have, you know, no... Buddy standing up necessarily and teaching like we're teaching this morning. They're just getting together, and they're praying for each other, and encouraging each other, and they're studying the scriptures, and they're taking communion, and they're taking care of each other, and they're meeting pretty much every day. And that's the thing that's eventually going to be called Christian. The people are going to actually be called Christians. Right now, they're called the people of the way. Because the person they're following is Jesus, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father by me. So when they had to describe these people, they just went, oh, they're the people that follow that, 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 that guy that said he's the way. They were known as people of the way. And so that's what we find when we get to Acts chapter 6. That's, that's the event that's happening. This morning, we're going to talk about a guy by the name of Stephen, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest end last chapter story real quick. Um, he becomes the first martyr of the church. We're going to be introduced to him. This, we were introduced to him last week, and he was one of the first deacons. And this morning, you're going to see some things about him, and then I'm not going to go into, and then next week, we're going to talk about the, the sermon that he preaches before the Sanhedrin. But the bottom line is, when this story is all said and done, this guy dies for being a person following Jesus, a person of the way. And he's the first martyr, and I think you're going to start to see why as we start to talk about him this morning. So, Acts chapter 6, let's walk through the passage, then we'll apply it to our lives for this week. So, Acts chapter 6 is what it says. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. There arose a certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, or in some translation, maybe the uh, the synagogue of the freedmen. And the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and them of Sicily and of Asia disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and spirit by which he spoke. So let's let's back this up and walk through it. 
Here's what he says, first of all. Stephen is full of faith. That's important for us to understand. This guy was a good guy. In fact, when they had to choose a leader to help serve and take care of the widows, he was their first choice. This is a good guy. He has an incredible amount of faith. That is important to understand. His trust and confidence is in God. Next week, we're not going to be able to read all of chapter 7, so if you want to read Acts chapter 7 before you get here next week, it will help you because we're going to have to kind of highlight it uh, because it, the, the, the message is so long. Um, but in that message, basically, he has this incredible confidence in God. And he is a man of incredible faith and trust that, you know what? My life, my, my, everything that I do is in the hands of God. But it says he's a man of full of faith and of power. Um, it, it has that idea of uh, people took notice as, as, as he spoke and as God used him. And he did many great wonders and miracles among the people. It's interesting. As we get in the book of Acts, we only find um, the apostles, um, Stephen, uh, Philip, and Barnabas are the ones who do most of the miracles in the book of Acts. He is the first guy mentioned that's doing miracles that is not one of the apostles. So, again, this is a guy that God's hand is on. And that, that is very important for what we're, where we're going today, that we understand that. Then it goes on, and it says, There arose a certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertine. Uh, one, of the, one of the writers said uh, th- there were approximately about 480 or 450 synagogues in the area of Jerusalem at this time. So there were all kinds of synagogues. There were small groups and small assemblies, but they would, they would, they would attract certain demographics, just like churches today. You know, you know churches attract younger people and older people and this worship style and that worship style. Same thing with the synagogues. They had all kinds of synagogues around. One of the synagogues was a synagogue of the Libertines. These were guys who had, or, or men and women, who had been captured in the uh, Roman captivity of Pompeii in 63 B.C. Later, Rome released them. And they kind of formed their own little community, and they had their little synagogue. The next group that he talks about are the Cyrenes and the Alexandrians. These are two groups of people from northern Africa. If you remember the story of Jesus and Jesus going to the cross, the person who carries the cross for Jesus is Simon the Cyrene. Okay? So this, he was from this area. So there was a group of those people who, had, who were, were worshiping in, in a synagogue. These were all Hellenistic Jews, and by that what we mean is they were, not, they were not naturally born Jews. They were not naturally born Hebrews. These are people who were Greek people who came to Christ or, or wanted to follow in the Jewish religion. So they became Hellenistic Jews. They would read the Greek Old Testament, which was the Septuagint. They adopted many of the Greek ways, so that made a little bit of rub with the more Orthodox Jews. Um, and so there was always that little rub. Um, the other group <clears throat> of them, Sicily and, uh, and, and of them, Sicily and Asia, disputing with Stephen. The last group is very significant because, here's why. Saul, who later becomes Paul, who later writes most of your New Testament, was from where? Anybody remember? Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. Okay? Tarsus is located in Sicily and Asia. It's located in this area. There is strong belief among many Bible scholars that Stephen had attended 
one of the synagogues that Paul, Saul, and Gamaliel, who was uh, the teacher of Saul, one of the synagogues. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people who actually believe that Saul, or that Saul and Gamaliel may actually have been involved in this event right here. Because you see, in a little bit later, Stephen's going to be stoned. And guess who's standing there? Saul. Saul would have, always, would have been there if he would have been one of the accusers as well. So there's, there, there's a little bit of theory here that actually Saul may have been involved with, we know that he was involved with the first martyrdom of Stephen, he's there, but even in the false accusation that's going to be made against Stephen. Okay? So you see that, and notice what it says. So what happened was these guys got together. Stephen would walk into their, their synagogues, he would talk, and they would, they would argue with him, and people would start following Stephen. And the synagogue guys are going, oh, I don't like this. Well, they all got together. And they said, well, he did this in our synagogue too. Oh, yeah, he did that in our synagogue too. Tell you what, let's have a formal debate. Let's get him in there. We'll set him up. We'll all be involved in it. We'll try to corner him because we've got to stop this thing. It's getting a little crazy. Okay? So notice what happens next. Going on to the next passage, verse 11. Here's what it says. Then they suburbed men which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Whenever you see a charge like this, the most important charge is always mentioned first. So, what's the most important charge against him? He spoke against who? Moses. I'll, I'll tell you why it's important in a second. And God. It's like God's like the, the, the oh yeah, plus God um, kind of thing. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and caught him. Literally, the text says, grabbed him violently by force. Now, in chapter 5, they were afraid. Remember, they, 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 after they came out of jail, they went to him and they went, hey, hey, be careful here. You know, we don't want to get the people all bent out of shape. Let's do this peacefully. Not so now. Because, see, they're going to bring him before the Sanhedrin. And this is the third time they brought these guys before Sanhedrin. You know, they brought, they brought Peter there twice. And the first time they slap on a wrist, don't, don't keep talking about this Jesus anymore. And the second time, what do they do? The second time they look at him and they beat them and they say, okay, maybe that'll be a lesson so you'll stop doing this. The third time they're going to kill him. That's what's going to happen. But notice what happened. It says, and they caught him and they brought him to the council and they set up false witnesses which said, this man ceased not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place of the law. Now, it looks like the charges changed. It looks like, okay, the first accusation was he spoke against Moses and law. The charge is the same, okay? Because what you have to do is he said this holy place, that's referring to the temple. In the Jewish world, the temple was the dwelling place of God. And notice what he says, and the law, because he said, for we have heard him say this Jesus of Nazareth. Now, remember up until now, they would not use the term Jesus. When Peter was before the Sanhedrin, even the Sanhedrin would not use the term Jesus. They called him this man. Now, they're calling him Jesus, but who are they associating him with? Nazareth. Why? Remember Nathaniel? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So now, all of a sudden, they, they, want, to, they want to taint everything against Stephen. And they go, hey, this guy, he's following that person of the way, that Jesus of Nazareth. And we know nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And then notice what he goes on to say. For we have heard him say, 
This Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place. Talking about the temple. Jesus never said he would destroy this place. Jesus said, you destroy this place and I'll raise it up in three days. Speaking of his body. Again, they made this up. They've lied. Stephen didn't say this. Peter didn't say this. Jesus didn't say this. But they've got to taint the thing with the Sanhedrin. And notice what he says. Shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered it. Jesus said, look, I, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So they misconstrued the whole thing completely. Now, here's the brilliancy in what they're doing. And, and this is what you have to understand. The first time they brought them before the Sanhedrin, the issue was the resurrection. And if you remember that, that was a moot point. You know why? Because the Sanhedrin had a bunch of religious leaders, a large portion of Pharisees, and a large portion of Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. So guess what? You've got a divided jury. The next accusation was that you're saying that this is a God thing, that, that God is involved in this. And again, they couldn't come to an agreement. But this accusation everybody's on par with it. And here's why. The Pharisees believe strongly in Moses, and the Pharisees believe strongly in the temple. The Sadducees believe strongly in Moses and strongly in the temple. Now they had a charge that would stick. And so they bring him before the Sanhedrin, and the typical thing was he would stand there, they would make all the accusations, and then when we get to chapter 7 next week, you're going to see this, he gets an opportunity to have his say. So I want you to, before we get to the last verse, I want you to just stop and put yourself in this picture. You're trying to do what's right. You're bought before a group, and a bunch of lies are made up about you and what you've said. How do you respond, and what do you do? I love the brilliancy of Scripture. And listen to what the next verse says. In verse uh, 15. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. They're watching him. Every time they make a lie about him, they're watching him. Every time they say something about it, they're watching him. And here's the beauty of this. And you don't catch this unless you really dig in this. The Sadducees don't believe in angels. And Luke's comment is, that's a face of an angel. It's only, the idea is only used of one other person in the scripture. Anybody want to guess who it was? Moses. You see what Luke's saying? Luke is looking at this thing going, he looks like an angel. Take that, Sadducees. And God did that when Moses came down out of the mountain. That's the other time God did it. So there, take that, both of you. Now deal with the guy. And I think in this story, there's a ton of stuff for us. So with that in mind, let's talk about how we apply it in our own lives this week. Okay. Um, because I, again, there's just a, there's a, there's a lot of lessons. So here's the first one. Difficulty in your life 
does not mean you're doing wrong. You get that? Some of you got people that, that are talking against you. doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Some of you have been going along in your Christian life and everything's kind of smooth, and then all of a sudden this huge situation or circumstance has been dumped into your lap. And you want to step back and you want to go, okay, God, you must be angry with me. God, you must be upset with me. God, you... No, no, no. Remember the story. Acts chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 6. This is one of the top guys following God at this time. Before this story, he's described as a man full of faith, a guy who's passionate about God. This is a guy who's doing everything right. And then he's about ready to die. Because he's doing everything right. He's about ready to die because a bunch of people made up a bunch of lies about him. Because you see, one of the things you see in this story is this principle of just because it's difficult, just because people are saying stuff, just because your circumstances have have turned south on you, doesn't necessarily mean you've done anything wrong. In fact, I would argue that it's probably because you've done everything right. Let me give you a story. Think about this for a minute. Most people don't catch this. Remember the story of Job? Here's what a lot of people don't miss. Here's what a lot of people miss about the story of Job. If, when you go back and you read the story of Job and you go to the beginning of the story, here's what happens. Satan goes to and fro the earth looking for somebody. And he can't find anybody to really hammer at. Who suggests Job? God. God says, hey, by the way, I want you to know, you missed this guy. See, he's over in a little corner of the world. He's like doing his own thing and serving God and his family serving God. And, and, and he's just kind of plugging away in this little remote area, doing his little thing. And, and you haven't thought about him. He didn't come to your attention when you were looking for great people. And God says, because you know what? I know the heart of this guy. And I know no matter what you throw at him, he can handle it. Now, Job didn't think he could handle it. Job's wife didn't think he could handle it. But God knew he could. And God said, that guy over there, he's my guy. Here's your limit, Satan. Here's your limit. By the way, interesting about the life of Job. Everything that Job lost, he gets back. Fascinating. The only exception is his children. They're not doubled. And the reason is most Bible scholars believe because in heaven, he, they're doubled. I say this to say this. Look, just because difficulty comes, be careful about thinking that that means that you're doing something wrong or that God doesn't love you. It might be just the opposite. And I maintain most of the time it is. You see, God has to look in heaven and he goes, God in heaven's looking down going, you know what? Somebody's going to have to be the first martyr. Somebody's going to have to be the first guy that loses his life since I gave my life for him. Stephen, that's my guy. He's a good guy. He's full of grace and mercy. He's got a humble heart. He's the guy I can use. And God says, you know what? I'm going to use him in a great way. And it's incredible what happens to the church 
after this event. And they use it to try to hurt the church, and God uses it to do something incredible. Does Stephen pay a high price? Yes, he does. But Stephen had a heart that wanted to serve God no matter what, and God said, this is what I'm going to ask of you, but I will use this in a great way. That difficulty, that circumstance, that attack where somebody's trying to hurt you or harm you or destroy you or tear you down, it might just be God stepping in to saying, you know what, I'm going to do something great here. Second thing is this. Remember that when you do right, the world gets uncomfortable. You see, what kicked this whole thing off was they couldn't refute his argument. As they stood, as he stood there among some of the most brilliant religious minds of the day in the synagogue, they're going, we can't get him, we can't get him. Let's try this. No, can't get him there. No, 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 no. And they realized that his wisdom far exceeded their wisdom, and they had to shut him down. You get that? You get that, that at work, when you stand up and try to do what's right, there are going to be a lot of people uncomfortable? Those of you who are in jobs where you are taught to slack off because everybody else slacks off, Try going into the workplace and going, no, 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 no. I'm going to punch my time clock when I'm supposed to. If I'm allowed a 15-minute break, I'm only going to take a 15-minute break. You try doing it by the rules, and you're going to make a lot of people really uncomfortable. Why? Because you see, when you do right, the world feels convicted, and they need to shut you down. They need to do it. Kids, listen to me. Teenagers, You try to stand up for what's right. Mark my words. The kids who are doing wrong are going to be very uncomfortable, and they will do everything in their power to shut you down. Those of you going to college, those of you involved in college, listen, you need to understand this. You start holding the line, you start doing what you're supposed to do, and you know what? They're going to be very uncomfortable. Why? Because when you do what's right, People who are not doing what's right get uncomfortable. They will lie about you. They will try to set you up. They will try to hurt you. They will try to undermine you. They will make up stuff about you. They will do everything they can to get you, to get frustrated, angry, lose your cool, blow your top, react in a wrong way. You've watched that play out this week in the media. You watch somebody do something really dumb and really stupid. And the only thing worse than what they did is them trying to undo what they did. It's like you have, you have you've made yourself look so foolish. Smartest thing you could have done is say, I'm sorry, it was dumb, case closed, shut your mouth. But you have watched as that thing has just snowballed and gotten worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Because instead of sitting down and acting, they reacted. And that's what the world wants for you. They want a reaction. Which takes me to my last thing. The world was watching to see how Stephen would respond. All of their eyes were focused on that guy. Because they wanted to see how he was going to respond. How he was going to react. 
And it's as if God in heaven said, you know what, Stephen? You just stand there. And you let me show through your countenance, show through your response, me. You allow the world, you allow the Sanhedrin to see me through you. See, that's the whole point of this thing. And you're going to see that, by the way, you're going to see that when he gets martyred, too. Where he stands there in this fearlessness and this confidence and this humility and this grace. And he simply stands there and says, God, use me because they're watching. And the Bible says, this is so ironic to me. The Bible says that he had the face of an angel to people who didn't believe in angels. To somebody who was only said of Moses as he came down off the mountain with God. And God said, you know what? I am going to use you in your response in a great way. Now listen to me. Some of what you're going through is so that the glory of Christ can be seen in you. Where God just simply wants you to say, you know what? I understand they're lying about you. I understand they're saying all kinds of stuff. You just let me work it out. Don't go, don't go jumping into this thing. Don't make it worse than it is. You just let me use you and speak through you to do something incredible. You go through tough time, and you can respond that way. The world sits back, and they go, you know what? I don't understand how they can do that. And you have an incredible opportunity to say, let me tell you how. It's not me. It's Jesus working through me and in me. That's the reason sometimes we go through some of the stuff we go through. Because you see, here's the reality of it. Anybody can follow Jesus when it goes well. Right? Believe me, I, let me tell you something. If I, I would love for the Bible to be, in my mind, if I could get the Bible to be the health, wealth, and prosperity thing, I'm all in. I am all in. I really am. Where it's like, where I can just look at you and say, you know, you know, you know, give and you'll get more. Um, do, you know, but so, I mean, you know, I'll be, it's an awesome way. Have you seen how those pastors live? I mean, it's awesome. But when I go back through my Bible and I look at Bible characters, I see people who paid a really high price so that God could be seen in their lives. I see guys who went through some incredible things. These disciples, the apostles that we talk about, every one of them dies a martyr's death because it was real to them, even when people tried to shut them down. And for some of you, what has happening to you is a way for Christ to be seen in you just like it was in the life of Stephen. And so for some of you who are here this morning, you're in a work situation where people are lying about you, making stuff up, trying to undermine you. Hang in there. You know how the world responds when that happens. Don't respond that way. Respond in a way that reflects Christ. Some of you are in a 
divorce situation where you're dealing with a blended family and there's the exes and they're constantly trying to undermine you and they're constantly trying to, to, to convince the kids one way or the other. You, you know what I'm talking about. And it's just ugly, ugly, ugly. Hang in there. Respond in a way that reflects Christ. Because you know what? You've got kids who are watching too. Some of you are in situations where you've raised kids and they're breaking your heart. And you, you want to respond in a way that is not healthy. You need to respond in a way that reflects the love of Christ. Where they can see Christ in you. Some of you are in family situations where you know as well as I do this, you know, this whole time of the year when all of a sudden families start to get together and so-and-so has to sit over there because they're not talking to them, not talking to them. To, you know how all that goes. Somebody needs to be the hero and step up the plate and say, let me show you how Christ would be involved in this situation. When somebody says something about you and goes through all that dynamic, you, you reflect Christ. Some of you are in situations where financially things are not going the way that you want them to go, and it's tough. That's really tough, and you're so tempted to go the easy routes and do the stuff and cut corners and not do what's right. Be careful here. Reflect Christ in the way you do those things. Or you go through health situations, and, 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 and you're trying to, 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 to figure it all out, and you're trying to make it about you know, whether or not you did wrong, and 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 you know you you got to reflect Christ in all of it. Some of you are dealing with some incredible burdens in caring for elderly parents. That's hard. It is so hard, and it's frustrating to you. And 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 there's a tendency sometimes to be short because the burden is so hard. Hang in there. Look at it as an opportunity to reflect Christ. Some of you got work situations that are a little rough. And uh, you need to reflect Christ in your workplace. You know, I love the idea. I mean, I, I hope Dave doesn't get fired. But um, I love the idea where you go, hey, I'll buy you a pizza if you'll help me with church on Sunday. Um, you know, I mean, I love that idea. Uh, you know, I love that idea. You know, I mean, you know, that's pretty bold when Laura sits somebody in a chair and says, while I'm cutting your hair, go, hey, let's talk about eternity. Oops, whoop. Um, you know? Look, Paul said it this way. Christ in you, the hope of glory. They may not come to a church. They may not read a Bible. But they're watching your life. And in your circumstances, in your, whatever you're going through right now, you have an opportunity to reflect Jesus Christ in the way you go through it. That way, people can see Christ in us. And we can watch as God, in this crazy way, uses us to accomplish what he wants to do. Is it a price for us sometimes? Yeah, it is. But see, there's coming a day when all of that gets honored and rewarded and all of that. And then we'll look back on it and we'll go, you know, I thought it was a big price at that point. But it really wasn't. Not when I compare it to what God did in that amount of time for all of eternity. What an incredible opportunity. Um, I wasn't going to say anything, but I, I'm going to say it. Um, 
25 years ago, Wednesday, I preached for the first time here. And if you don't know the story, it's a hoot, okay? Because back then, guys stood on the front porch. Most of the time, time to give them the last cigarette before the service. But um, they would stand on the front porch. Um, first time I came out, I drove all the way past Holly Springs. I got, I got halfway between Holly Springs and Spiffland. And I looked at my wife, and I said, do you think that was the town back there? <laughs> we turned around, drove back. Well, here's back then... The sign for Holly Springs, you had one going this way. You didn't have one going that way. And so we pull in, and there's this church, and we're looking at it going, wow, okay. (laughs) And then they asked me to come back, and it was like, okay. And I remember I sat on the platform, and I thought, this is the hokiest thing I have ever been involved with in my life. I'm not even talking about the people. Um, I'm just talking about the whole thing. And I looked at it and I thought, you know, we need to change this, and we need to change this, we need to change this, we need to change this. And they they kept asking me back, and so every Sunday I would sit in the front and just make a mental list of everything I needed to change. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. God intervened. And for some reason, God said, look, don't, don't don't be dumb here. Just sit back and learn for a year. Don't change anything for a year. And I remember, the only thing, we changed one thing. And we went from, at that time, we met Sunday morning and Sunday night. And I said, let's move it to Wednesday night. Because literally, Sunday morning, we would meet. We'd go over people's houses. We'd fellowship all afternoon. At, at like 6 o'clock, we'd look at each other and say, stop, time out. Let's go to church now. And I thought, this is kind of silly. You know, let's just keep fellowshipping on Sunday. And then we'll meet again on Wednesday so we can, we can pray and, and study and stuff like that. And... At the end of that year, I didn't change any of the hokey stuff. We still do it. (laughs) And I look at the faces that are here today. And I look at the blessing that you are in our family. And I look at the opportunities that God has given us. And I look at the struggles that we've been through, the burdens that people have carried, the hardships that people have been through. And the irony is that some of you sit here today because of what people sitting across whatever from here went through and you watched them. And you said, I don't know what it is they've got, but whatever it is they got, I need. And God has brought you in here, and God, you've become a part of it, and you've become a blessing. You've become an encouragement to help other people. And I sit here and I watch this thing evolve and develop and, 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 and watch what God's doing. And I'm thinking, God, this is just incredible to be in the middle of all this thing. Because as a group, I think it's genuinely our heart's desire for Christ to be seen in us. But let's make no mistake about it. That comes at a high price tag. But if we're serious about following Christ, we give him a blank check. And we say, Lord, use me however you can use me. Stephen, man full of faith, power, wisdom, grace, humility, says, Lord, use me. 
however you can use me. And God uses them in such a great way this thing takes off like crazy. If we're really going to be Christ followers. Paul made a very interesting prayer in one of his epistles when he said this, that I may know him and the fellowship of his suffering. Paul said, I want to be like him even if it means I'm going to go through people saying stuff about me, difficult times, whatever. I want Christ to be seen in me no matter what. And that should be our prayer as well. So I close with this. As we go forward this week, my prayer for each of us is that our lives reflect the grace and the power that is sourced in Jesus Christ. When difficult times or unfair criticisms come our way, we focus on our response, not the criticism or circumstance. Our response should be one which reflects the face and the attitude of Christ, a response of power, grace, humility, and a fearlessness of whatever the future holds. Let's pray. Lord, use us. God, that's an easy prayer to say, but it is a tough one to live. So, Lord, as there are many, many issues in our lives, we've walked in here with a lot of baggage, a lot of stuff. But, Lord, in each one of those situations, we have been given an opportunity to reflect you. We've been given an opportunity where people can see Christ in us. And, Lord, that's our greatest desire, is that as we come to the end of our lives, you could look at our life and say, well done, knowing, Lord, that we did it for the right reasons in a way that honors and reflects you and uses. And, Lord, when it is all said and done, we all gather together around your throne one day. May we be able to celebrate and rejoice in the fact that you used us. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Well, let's stand together, and we're going to sing the first verse, the love of God. Let's stand together as we sing.